invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to James chapter 1. We'll be focusing on the text I read earlier in verses 5 through 8. By way of reminder, last week we looked at verses 1 through 4. And we are talking about our theme is a non-fiction faith. And we said a non-fiction faith is one that has Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And then James says, well, let me test to see whether you have that faith or not. And one of the tests that he talks about in chapter 1 that we've gone over last week and this week and one more week perhaps is the test that demonstrates that we respond rightly to our trials. You could very easily say that the point of verses 2 through 4 in a nutshell is that the right response of a Christian means this. We should not ask God when we can get out of our troubles, but what we should get out of our troubles. Let me say it again. Christians, when they respond rightly to trials, here's what they ask God. They, they don't ask when they can get out of their troubles, but what they can get out of them. And so James is going to tell you that here's what I want you to get out of your trials. I want you to get wholeness. I want you to lack nothing is the word in the end of verse 4. I want you to be mature. I want you to become more complete. I want you to be more like Jesus. And, and so he's going to pick up on that very theme. And you can see the connection between verses 2 through 4 in that paragraph and then verses 5 through 8 because they begin and end with the same word. Uh, verse 4 says... Last phrase, lacking in nothing. If you draw a circle or use your pen, draw a pen or a line to verse 5 because it begins with the same exact concept. If any of you lacks wisdom, lack in verse 4 and the word lacks in verse 5. And it means to be deficient. Um, Romans 3.23 is the most famous use of it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the word lacks. You, you fall short of it. You don't have enough of it. You, you need it. And so, although it looks like when you read verses 5 and 6 that he's talking randomly about prayer and kind of just switching topics, he's really not. He's connecting verses 5 through 8 to verses 2 through 4. And the connection is that we lack something. If we're going to let trials bring joy into our life and the joy of being a more complete Christian, a more mature Christian... He's going to say, you lack something, and that something is wisdom. See, God puts, hear me, God puts trials in your life. And I want you to stop right now in your mind. What trials are you going through? What are you really facing? What are the troubles and the difficulties you're going through? Now, if God's going to bring you the joy of completion in your life, that you can be more fully like him, how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen apart from his wisdom. See, here's what you have to do to have wisdom from God in your trials. You have to ask him. Here's why. Because you lack it. You lack it. You are deficient in it. So here's the main idea this morning. You need and I need God's wisdom to respond to our trials so that we can become more mature. An old preacher, Vance Havner, said this. If you, need, if you lack knowledge, go to school. But if you lack wisdom, get on your knees. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. See, prayer tells volumes about what kind of person that you really are. And here's what James says. If you want the wisdom to be more complete, not more incomplete, but complete through your trials, you're going to have to go to God and ask him for wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Well, it's different than knowledge. Our world has more and more knowledge, but less and less wisdom. 
Let me give you an example. I read a statistic this week in 2019. In one minute's one minute to- of time, in America, 18.1 million texts are given. 4.5 million videos are added on YouTube in the world. 4.5. That's in one minute of time. Now, that's a lot of information. How many of you know what an exabyte is? Anyone know what an exabyte is? I didn't know what it was till this week either. An exabyte is a, 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 is a measure of storage, like gigabyte or megabyte, but it's called exabyte. Now, let me tell you this. Five exabytes are so big that all things that have been recorded, all information from the beginning of time until now can be recorded on five exabytes. Let me tell you this. By 2025, the estimation is that that amount of information from the beginning of time to now will be recorded every 15 minutes of every day. That's almost unfathomable. That that much information, that much knowledge is out there. But can I tell you this? God's not saying that you need more knowledge. Now, we're going to see in our text a little later on and in other texts that wisdom and knowledge go together. But they're not the same. Wisdom is the application, the specific application of the knowledge that you have, i.e. primarily God's knowledge, in such a way that you live out his word in obedience. So it's taking the knowledge that you have of God and applying it to your life. There are a lot of people, and please do not be deceived by that. There, this, a lot of people think that because you know the Bible and you know a lot about God or a lot about the Bible, and you can even quote scripture, that that makes you mature. And James wants us to know this. It's not true. You can know the Bible inside and out that does not guarantee that you are wise, nor are you living obediently, specifically, or especially in your trials. I know people that fall apart in trials, and they know the Bible very, very well. So please don't think this morning, because you have a lot of knowledge, and you've been in a church, and you heard a lot of sermons in Sunday school classes, and even went to Bible college or seminary, that that necessarily means that you have it. So let me tell you this. James is going to tell us, as all wisdom literature does, that there are two ways. Two ways to go about accessing God's wisdom. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I want to unpack both of them in the brief time we have together this morning so that you can know how to apply God's wisdom to your trials, whatever that might be. So let's look at number one in verse five. This is the right way to access God's wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, technically, this is a Greek phrase that should be translated since or because. It's called a conditional statement. It's not really doubting if you have it. The statement is actually saying you don't have it fully. You really don't. And since you, don't, since you lack wisdom, here's what you need to do. You need to ask God. So let me play, make it plain and simple. See, the number one thing you need this morning, and I don't even know what your trial or your trouble might be. I don't know the scope of it, the magnitude of it, the severity of it. I don't know any of that. But here's what I do know. You know what I know? The number one thing that you need is God's wisdom. And can I tell you this? And you know what you don't have enough of, although you may not think so? Is you don't have enough of God's wisdom. You don't. See, Here's what I have found out over the years in trials. If you're going to apply God's wisdom and live obediently to him and to his word in your trials, you are, have to be a person who has enough humility to say this. I am not as wise as I think I am. 
That's where you have to start. You have to say, I am not as wise as I think I am. I am still, it's still kind of incredulous to me after all the years I've counseled people and tried to help people with their problems. They come in and perhaps their marriage is falling apart or their child is really out there or a bunch of other different things in their life. They're dealing with the sin they can't defeat in their life and they're desperate and they've come so late in the problem to talk to me about it. I mean, it's been going on so long and it's, the whole thing's about to fall apart and now they want to get help. And that's great because at least they had to come. But here's what I have found. I have found over the years that people don't really want the help. They want to tell you what they think they're doing and you to justify it. And the reason is, is they don't have humility to realize that you don't have the wisdom. Now, I thought if your life is in this much trouble and you come to the pastor and you're asking for help, I'm thinking that you've already come to the conclusion what you know and what you think doesn't work. Because look where you are. But it isn't true. It isn't true. And I say that not to demean people. I say that because here's what we are all about. We all think that we know what we ought to be doing. We, we all think that we have it right. And here's what James says. Wise people go to God first in their trials. That's why he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask, look, look of God. Of God. God's the source of wisdom. God is the standard of the wisdom that you need. What, ready? Not Oprah. Sorry. Not Dr. Phil. You don't turn to Dr. Phil first. Not your friends. Not your family. Listen, watch. Not your pastor first. Not your wife first. God first. You know why? He's the source. He's the standard of wisdom. See, God is the starting point for wise people in trials. He's the starting point. Solomon was following his father David as king. He was king over all of Israel. And he had so many pressures and decisions he had to make to lead the country. And you know what the first thing he says? He goes to God. And you know what he asks? And God says this. Because you did not ask riches and wealth and power. You know what Solomon asked for? Wisdom. Because here's what Solomon knew that too many of us missed. That you can't get out of your troubles with money and position and manipulation and calling in favors and who you know. You ultimately will not get out of your trials in such a way or have your trials affect you in such a way that you become more spiritually mature. You know what you need? Wisdom. Wisdom from God. That's what we need. We go to God first. Because we're humble. So let me say it to you on the other side of the coin. Ready? Proud people don't pray. Proud people don't pray. Because they don't really think they need God. See, I've come to the conclusion over my life, wise people are not primarily smart. They are primarily humble. And so you want to know God, you want to have his wisdom, you want to know how to respond to the trials in the life that you cannot control, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You know why? Wise people are those who are constantly humbling themselves before the Lord because here's what they have come to realize. You cannot be wise apart from God. Do you have that down yet? You keep seeking this wisdom and that source of wisdom. You think that you can get it from this magazine. And if you read this book and you think, here's our problem. We cannot be wise apart from God. 
Proverbs 9.10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You know what the beginning of wisdom is? Fearing God, reverencing Him, worshiping, being in awe of Him. And Jesus, Colossians 2.3 says, He is the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We could say it this way, that God's Word is God's wisdom. And I have found this, people who don't think they need God's Word, God's wisdom, don't do this. They don't pray and they don't read the Bible faithfully. And every time I have counseled someone, small or large problem, one of the first things I ever say is, how is your prayer life and what have you been reading? And almost without exception, without exception, their life is falling apart because those two disciplines are vacant and absent in their life. And in doing so, they have forsaken the sources of getting access to God's wisdom. You see... What you need most in your trials is the wisdom that comes from God. Now, what do you have? Here's what James says. Let me tell you about God, okay? If I'm telling you, James says, that you need to go to God to get the wisdom, well, what kind of God is he? Well, look at verse 5. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Now, here's what he says. What kind of God is he? What's his character? Well, he gives it. He's a giving God. And, And he doesn't just give it. So when you get on your knees and pray, God says, you know what I love? I love to give you wisdom. I give it generously. And the word means simple, sincere. It's even a couple times in the Gospels translated this way, singularly. In other words, when you get on your knees, God has a singular motivation in how he responds to you. He wants to give you his wisdom. But here's the thing. The rub is this. We don't want to get it. The problem isn't with God giving it to us. It's us wanting it in our lives and the willingness and the humility to receive it in our lives. He goes on. What kind of God is he? Well, he gives it generously. Look at the text. To all. See, God's not greedy with it. He doesn't just hoard it. He doesn't just reserve it for a few people. You know, the people who are worthy Christians. You know, the Christians who have really got it on the ball. You know, he doesn't give it to a few or a favored ones. No, you know what he says? I'll be willing to give generously to all who come to me and ask for it. And he says, I do it without hesitation. I do it without restraint. And the word means not reproach. It means he doesn't have an attitude. You ever tell your kids this? Hey, I'm going to help you this one time. But after this, you're on your own. You ever say that? Well, I'm, you know, this time... And I'm not doing that again. See, sometimes we get a little anxious or a little irritated with people, right? If you're Italian, I think it's agita. You get a little upset, right? And you're not going to do this over and over again. That's not God. God doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't get an attitude. Well, you came this time. But where were you the last three times? God doesn't scold us like that. You know what kind of... He's waiting. He's waiting for you to open his word and to get on your knees and say, God, I can't handle this. I can't go on another day. I need your wisdom to help me to know how I can. It's it's reminder, is it? Do you hear the echo in the verse? It's Jesus talking through James. It's his brother, right? I think he heard him say, remember what it says? If you lack wisdom, ask God. And look what the verse says. And it shall be given unto him. Does that sound familiar? What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, 7? Ask And it shall be given unto you. I think James has heard his brother a few times. 
And and here he echoes Jesus' own wording. Why? Because he wants you to know that Jesus is waiting for you in your troubles. And when you're crying and when you're about to lose it and you're getting so frustrated and you don't know how to handle this and things are still not turning out the way you thought, here's what he says. Get on your knees and come to me for my wisdom. So let me ask you, what's the source of your wisdom? Truthfully, don't try to lie to yourself. Be honest. When you face trials, who do you go to? Right? Who's the first place you turn to when you're going through a divorce? How in the world are you ever going to sift through all the feelings of bitterness and anger and animosity when things are going well in your marriage without God's wisdom? See, when you lose a loved one and someone that is dear and near to you and you love deeply dies, how are you going to fight off getting bitter when God didn't cure them of the cancer that you asked them to? You need his wisdom. Financial setbacks, when you struggle and you have unemployment and you didn't get the promotion that you should have got and the needs are great financially and you're trying to juggle bills and pay your mortgage and have everything turn out right so there's something left at the end of the month, how are you going to be able to handle that? Who tells you about how to view money in your life? Who tells you what possessions to value and how much to value? Who tells you those things in your life? Is it Forbes magazine? Or is it God? See, who do you go to to know how to deal with your prodigal teenager who's not living right? And so do you think the best way is just to be their friend or cave in and give them what they want? See, who do you go to and where do you get the wisdom to know how to discipline your children and give them the right priorities and values and tell them what matters most in life and help them to see to it and to to stick true to the convictions that you have and not be so wishy-washy when you parent them? Where do you get the wisdom for that, God? Whose guidelines govern your responses to conflict and disagreements with believers over issues and whether they're issues of race or whatever it might be? How do you respond to people on social media and on Facebook and other places when they say things that you don't agree with and think are very... Who governs and guidelines your words and your attitudes toward people? Where do you get the wisdom for that? Well, you won't get it from our world. You get it from God. Wisdom basically is what we tell ourselves about our troubles. It's how we interpret the events of life that come our way. It's the beliefs that we have, the lens that we use to see everything that we face in our life. I've given this illustration, but I think of a room. I just call it room 101. There's this couple, they're going on their honeymoon And they come up to this room and they open the door and you're there and you ask them, hey, how would you like to spend your honeymoon week in this room? And they look at it and they go, you've got to be kidding. I mean, this place is dirty. It's disgusting. I mean, this can't be costing more than $19.99 a night. I'm not spending my honeymoon in this room. They leave and... Not very long afterwards, another couple comes in, and they're a couple that live homelessly on the street, same room, and they come in and say, hey, how would you like to spend your week together in this room? And they go, are you kidding, really? I mean, we could stay here? We could stay here for a whole week? And they go, wow, we'll take it. And I always think of, it's the same room. What's the difference? Expectation, perspective, 
two different wisdoms functioning, same room, same eyes, completely different view of it. See, that's what James is saying. See, here's what he's saying. There are two different ways to handle your trials. There's God's way and the world's way. Now, there's a right way, and we've looked at it. The right way is to access God's wisdom through prayer in the Bible. That's the way to respond to your trials. But James says, let me flip it over because this is what antithetical wisdom does. See, he says there's also a wrong way and you need to be leery of it because here's a warning from him. He says in verse 6, but let him, in contrast, see, but, but let him ask in faith. See, the word ask is in both words. See, ask this way, but don't come to God and ask this way. It's like Proverbs 9. Here's how wisdom literature is set up in Scripture. Proverbs 9 says there is woman wisdom and woman folly. They both have houses. They both have streets that go by their houses. And men pass by them all the time. But the invitation to the house and what you get on the inside are disasterly, I should say, completely different. And you can choose to go into a woman wisdom's house or a woman's folly's house. And one is life and one is death. I mean, they are so different. But on the outside, see, it looks the same. James is going to do the same thing for us when we get to chapter 3. He's going to tell us there's two types of wisdom. There's a wisdom from above, God's wisdom, and there's a wisdom from below. And you have to make your choice. In fact, you already have today. You've made a choice of whether you're going to get out of bed and get your kids here in time to hear the word of God because you think it's valuable. You think it's... And people... Many didn't do that today. They made a different choice for different reasons. And what James is doing is putting before us this morning a choice that we all have to make, not just today, but every day in every situation that we face. Whose wisdom is it going to be? He says, when you come to God, here's what you do. You ask him, but there can't be any doubting. Doubting about what? Doubting about whether God has all the wisdom that you need, whether he is willing to give it to you generously, See, you cannot doubt who God is and what he can do in your trials. And so let me tell you this. If you're here this morning and you're facing a trial, you say, Pastor Walker, I'm not really sure that God's wisdom. I mean, the Bible, is it really up to date? Is it relevant? Can it handle my trials? Can it handle my problems? Really? I mean, do you know what I'm going through? I mean, none of this specifically is mentioned in Scripture. See, God says, if you come to me that way, you come to me doubting questioning whether I am the source of wisdom that you need and whether my wisdom is sufficient for all that you're going through, he says, you will not get anything from me, he says. And then he says this, let me give you two reasons to come to me in faith. And they're marked off, circle it in your Bible, I'll, I'll point out one of them each of them at a time. Verse 6 has it, and it's the little word for. See it in the verse 6, look at your text. One is in verse 6 and one is in verse 7. There's two reasons James gives that you should not doubt and trust God, wholly rely on his wisdom, and follow it, even if it doesn't feel good. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. First one, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James gives a picture of a sea and the wind and the waves. This is not a calm sea. This is a stormy sea. On my wife and I's anniversary, however long ago, 25th anniversary, so I don't know, a long time ago, um, we went on a cruise. And I've been on a couple cruises. I, I like them. And I was out there. I, I haven't been on a cruise much at all. 
I went on the church cruise we had that one time, too. But we were out there, and, the, and, and of course, we're not very far out, and I think it was that it got really kind of windy, and it got wavy, and they were telling us that we couldn't go outside. It was actually kind of cold, if I remember correctly. And I remember looking out on the deck and watching out the winds and the waves. Wow, I mean, in our ship, I could feel it when we were sleeping. I'm going, like, oh. You know, I didn't know if I was seasick. I never had been seasick before, but I, I took a pill. I didn't do too good that night. But we were up and down. You watch the waves out there. I mean, the waves come up and they go down. It's, you know, they crest and they come up. And what I watched is this. The waves are totally controlled by the wind. Whatever way and direction the wind blows, that's what the wave does. And that's what James is saying. I call it, I've labeled it, wave wisdom. Have you ever seen wave wisdom? See, theologically, there's wave wisdom. If you read Ephesians 4.14, it says that we shouldn't be children, immature, not full or, or, or complete. And here's what characterizes them. They have the waves of doctrine come and go, and they're tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. And and, and you can see it today in people who still want to be popular. They write books. They're big churches. So they don't want to come out and say, oh, homosexuality is a sin. I don't want to say that anymore because people might leave my church. And so I've changed my mind on that. And, you know, transgender, you know, that might be not that bad. And, you know, abortion, come on, you know, a woman has a right. And they've, they've switched positions. And they've, and they've, they've, the winds blow this way. And what's popular in culture, what makes their church big, you know, so they, they change around theologically about what is right scripturally because they want, they have an agenda, see. That happens theologically, but it also happens practically. See, wind and wave people, they're just all over the place practically in their lives. You've seen people like this. They, whatever they read, the, the latest psychology study and research, oh, you know, you have to, now this is the way we do it now. Or the latest New York Times bestseller by some philosophical guru, oh, this is the way that they said that this were, were to respond to this now. Or whatever's popular, whatever's in vogue, whatever's fashionable, whatever the majority of people agree on, because I don't want to have any, you know, people ruffle their feathers or offend anybody. So they're all over the map about dating and being singular, single or about morality and what's right and wrong and what the gospel is and so forth and so on. And, and here's what they try to do. They become people of worldly wisdom and, quote-unquote, God's wisdom at the same time. And here's what James says. You can't be a wave-wisdom Christian. You can't let things blow you here and there based on what everybody says, what's popular, or what makes you fit in and accepted by your friends or people at your work or what the average person is saying. See, you can't do that. We cannot, listen, you cannot have God's wisdom and have political wisdom at the same time. You cannot. We will not solve the racial tension in America with man's wisdom. We need God's wisdom. See, verse 6, the first little four, that tells you what doubters think of God. They're all over the map. They think that they could have a little of God's wisdom and world's wisdom at the same time. But verse 7, the second one tells you what God thinks of doubters. And verse 7 says this, the second use of four, see it? For that person must not suppose, don't think for a moment, 21st century, you're not getting it. <laughs> I'm not giving wisdom to this person, God said, that you'll receive anything from the Lord. An integrationist is a person who thinks they can put two things together that don't blend. 
So let me tell you this. World's wisdom and God's wisdom cannot coexist. God says, you know why the doubter doesn't have their prayers answered in their worst time of need? Can I say it personally? You know why God doesn't answer you in your hour of need sometimes, in your trials? Because you're not coming to him for his wisdom the right way. You're coming doubting who he is and what his word says about that. I know, God, you said this, but it just doesn't seem right. And if I do that, I don't think it's going to solve it. It could make things worse. And God says, listen, you need to trust me and rely on me and what my word says. And see, when you don't, here's what's true of you. See, on the outside, a doubter on the outside is like the wave-driven toss all over the map. But you know why they're that way on the outside? Because this is what they're like on the inside. Ready for the term? Double-minded. He's a double-minded person. It's a word that only James uses in the New Testament. And truthfully, in Greek literature of his day, there was no other use. I think he coined it. It's a word that he made up seemingly himself to try to get us to picture when you don't trust God's wisdom in your trials, this is what your life's going to be like. And he says you're going to be double-minded. It literally means two-souled. It pictures someone who is divided in their loyalties and allegiances. See, it's the person who has a spiritual civil war being fought inside all the time. Because if you're a Christian, you want to do what God wants. And so you read the Bible and you said, oh, you know, I, I know, I think God wants me to do this. But then your friends are over here. And if I did that and I made that choice, then I wouldn't be happy and they wouldn't be popular. And, and I wouldn't be in. And you think so you, you waffle and you oscillate and you vacillate back and forth. He says you're double minded. Pilgrim's Progress, probably my favorite book, has a guy in it called this. His name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. And so when he faces this way, and he's with his friends, he needs worldly wisdom, he does this. But if he needs it, he'll face and turn this way. And he'll talk Christianese and and quote Bible verses. And whatever he's got to do, whoever he's with, that's what he's like. Mr. (laughs) Mr. Faces Both Ways. See, James says, by the way, the only other time double-minded is used is in this very book in chapter 4 and verse 8. Just listen to me read it. Don't turn there. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's in the very text where he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. You know why? Because they wanted to say that they love God and they have a marriage with him, but they want to be married to the world simultaneously. And by the way, that can happen in your heart. That can happen in your mind. When you are unwilling to let go of the world's wisdom on how you respond to life and people and things in it, he says. It's an inner attitude. It's one soul facing this way and the other soul, as it were, facing that way. Think of this, Lot's wife. God said to Lot and his family, I want you to get out of Sodom and I, don't, I want you to go up to this mountain, this cave, and I don't want you to turn around. I want you to look this way and not this way. And you know, Lot's wife was running the right way. She says, right way. But you know, in her mind as she's running, she had to turn around and look this way one more time. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. You know why? She was double-minded. She loved her family. She loved God. 
but she loved Sodom. Believe it or not, she loved Sodom, the life she had. Her husband sat in the gate, the power, the position, the wealth, the house, all of it. And she could, God could get her out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out of her. She was double-minded, and it cost her everything. See, it's the Sunday morning Christian, but not a Monday morning Christian. It's that you're here at church and you act and talk a certain way, but at work it's a whole other story. See, double-mindedness is why people come to church sometimes, but sometimes they don't. It's why sometimes people give a tithe, sometimes they don't. It's why sometimes people cuss and use foul language that they would never use here, but they do other ways and other times. It's why sometimes people are moral, and sometimes they're not, because they have two souls. They're divided, hearts and allegiances. I call it Jekyll and Hyde Christianity, where they're this person and then they're that person, because they have two souls, and they haven't completely dropped the world's wisdom. And here's what the result of it is. James lets us know how devastating it can be. You are unstable in all his ways. The word unstable is a compound word. It's only used in chapter 3, verses 8 and 16. And it's literally a word that's built with three different words. Not stand down. And what it means is you don't have the ability to put your feet firmly on the ground and stand up. It means you lack strength or a foundation to stand on it. Today we just say this. These are people who are fickle. They're fickle faith. They can't stand on what they believe, and they go back and forth. And the word fickle means change frequently, especially as regards to one's loyalties. They just don't stand firm on anything. They're back and forth. They're unstable. They're undependable. They're unreliable. You can't depend on them. One day they're this, and it's almost like they're moody. One day they're this, and another day they're that. I've seen it. They're loyal to God until, until he doesn't give them what they want or takes away something that they have, and their loyalty ceases. I've seen people who are loyal to church until someone upsets them or they don't get their way and they're no longer loyal. I've seen people who are loyal to their spouse until that spouse doesn't give them what they want. It's not as beautiful as they once were, not as attractive, not as nice, whatever the case might be. And the loyalty to the marriage and to the spouse, and sometimes tragically for many years and decades, no longer exists. Unstable in all your ways. Your ways means daily living. See, here's the thing that you can't control about instability and double-mindedness. You can't keep it isolated. You can't. I've seen it. You're unstable spiritually. You're uncertain about your relationship with God. And, and you're using worldly wisdom. And by the way, it doesn't just stay in one little corner. You know what happens? It spreads like a cancer. That's why unstable in all your ways. See, it starts affecting your job, and, and it starts affecting the things in your life, like your family and your friendships. You know why? Because you're really not committed to that job, and you, and you create uncertainty in your home, or you're not committed to your children in the way that you ought to be, or to your wife. You're not dependable to those things, because you refuse to let go of the world's wisdom about how to make decisions, how to work your way through life, especially trials and troubles. And what this person needs, and perhaps what you need this morning is what the psalmist is always crying out for, and that is a whole heart. 
Psalm 119, verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. And whole means this, not half or partial or divided, but my entire heart. Keep your, I keep your law, O God, with my whole heart. My allegiance is to you above all else. I hate double-mindedness, but I love your law. And my favorite, a prayer of mine, Psalm 8611, unite my heart to fear your name. You know, when you have to ask God to unite your heart, you know this, it's because your heart is too often fragmented. It's got compartments. It's got pieces. It's got a little here and a little here, there. And here's what the psalmist says, and it's our prayer. it should be our prayer. God, unite it. Give me all the pieces of my heart joined together to love you supremely, to make you first in my life. At the beginning of my message, and this I'll close, you know, Solomon started out asking for God's wisdom. He knew he needed it. By the end of his life, he had totally forsaken that concept completely. If you read 1 Kings chapter 11, it starts off with this, and Solomon loved many wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know why? Because he did not believe God's wisdom about how to rule the nation and not store up horses and gold and silver, not make peace treaties with foreign nations who were idolaters. And so instead of listening to God, he did his own thing. And he married all these wives so that he could have treaties. And with the wives came their foreign gods. And by the time he died, there were more temples to false gods by the droves than there were to the God of Israel. How does the guy go from asking and seeking God's wisdom to completely foreign concept? A little by little. You don't marry 700 wives in a day. Over time, over years, he got too big for his britches, my dad would say. He thought he was all that and all the gold and silver. See, he didn't listen to God, but he set himself up when he, he forsook God's words. And may I say, and so do you, and so do I. And the last epitaph of his life in 1 Kings eleven six says this, but not like his father's David, because he did not wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly follow the Lord. He only got a little bit, God did. Whose wisdom rules your life and your heart and your choices? God's? Or the world's. Let's pray. Father, in a moment we're going to sing, Take my life and let it be. But Father, you know in this song, it does not say, Take most of my life, part of my life, because you're not a God who hears prayers of people who have divided loyalties and allegiances. Divided hearts, God, you will not listen to. But oh, how you love people, though not perfect or sinless, who have a whole heart for you, a united heart. God, may that be true of the people at Faith Baptist Church, that we have a whole heart for God. Let us do this, Lord. Have a whole heart to keep your whole law for our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name.